Good morning. It is Monday, July 27th, 824 AM. Hope y'all had a good week. I know I did. It was really busy, packed with commerce and shipping and sourcing, mending, cleaning, worked a little bit on my suit. Um, I gathered some pearls from different people, um, freshwater pearls. I want to make a mermaid ethereal headdress. Liz is bringing me some human hair on Thursday. I'm really looking forward to incorporating the hair into the headdress. Um, so yeah, making fanciful sketches and collecting materials. I'm waiting on some bleached white peacock feathers. So I hope it's spectacular, but most of all, I hope it's beautiful. Because you know when you have an idea in your head and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be so great. <laughs> and then you're just like in the middle of execution. You're like, eh, I can start over. <sighs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so some of, the, some of the sketches that came out for the pearl headdress, um, are very silly. If you want to see them, I will text them to you. They're they're silly. Might it might be better just to wait until the product is finished, actually. Um, but I think I'm gonna send Kirsty some pictures because she will be modeling them hopefully for me. I need to get her head measurement. Anyway, uh, this is kicking off uh, part one of what I call Portland Ben Racist Part One. Um, I'm sure if you are listening to this podcast, you have at least been to Portland, lived in Portland, know someone in Portland, or have been somewhat keeping like abreast or noticing that there is a heavily militarized police presence right now uh, due to the protests in Portland. Um, one other thing to note uh, I've noticed different residences, residents of Portland opining that they feel the Black Lives Matter movement has been co-opted by Whitey uh, in these protests because it's kind of taking, because there are so many freaking white people in Portland, uh, the protests are, are very white-centered and it's becoming its own Thing that doesn't really have much to do with uplifting black people and being there for them. So that's interesting too. Um, I'm not going to unpack all of that in this one episode. Kind of getting off to a late start this morning because I've just been researching and reading. And at first I thought, I was like, oh yeah, I'm just going to do one jolly episode. And then I'm thinking, yeah, this needs a few more episodes um, to, to, to just like round out how Portland been racist. You know what I mean? It's been racist for a long time. It's been, Oregon has been racist before it was even a state. That's how, that's how much it was. And I'm not saying that it's any different than any of the other states of its time. But the thing that gels or solidifies the overt racism 
of Oregon is due to the the structure and like the style of their particular legislature of their state lawmakers um they they were known and prone to bloviation and long-winded speeches in fact one of the first laws they put forth was how long one of the speakers of the house should be able to speak for because they would just go on and on and on so um they also put a lot of stuff in writing all the time which that's that's how we have these records of their systemic racism can be traced so easily it doesn't let other states off the hook but it explains a lot about why we are where we are now one moment coffee So, in 1844, the Provisional Government of Oregon passed a law banning slavery. They also required any black person to leave the territory. Any black person was subject to flogging, public flogging, if they didn't leave Oregon within two years, and then if they decided to stay after their flogging, they would be taken out of their home and flogged again publicly every six months. The provision was revised to state this. Free black people would be offered up publicly for hire to any white person wishing to leave the territory. I'm just going to apologize for not having given a content warning or a trigger warning before that. Um, But I would like to move forward with the rest of this episode. Trigger warning and content warning in place. So I'm, I'm sorry I didn't catch that. Anyway, two, three, four, five, sorry. Um, So it's not stated whether or not the people of, the black people living in Portland were offered up to be enslaved. But I'm thinking if you're forced to be publicly offered up for hire, you're basically being put on an enslaver's platform So, and also there, I'm hard pressed to find records of if they were, if they were, if the freed black people that were offered up for sale or for hire, pretty much to me, it seems like for sale, but if they were offered up for hire, um, there's no record of any writings of their, their time spent in indentured servitude or anything like that. So. I'm inclined I'm inclined to think that it would be an enslavement dynamic. Okay? In 1859, Oregon was the only state to prohibit black people from living there. It was the only state to do so. Now, 
72.2% is white and 6.3% is black. And so that, that starts a long time. When they were trying to get people, white people, to come to the great state of Oregon um, and also to settle the land to make it become a state, uh, if you were a white man, you received 650 acres of land and a bonus of 650 more acres if you were married. This was land that was taken from Native people, by the way. Yeah. Um, So I'll definitely have to do another podcast episode all about that. So yeah, if you're if you're a married white guy, I don't think your wife is entitled to any of the land, but having a wife gives you 1300 acres. It's a great incentive to start a family. 650 acres, I don't even know what I'd do with 1 acre. I think I'd probably need a good 4 acres to start an English garden of my dreams though. 650 acres though. I I'd have to be a farmer. So when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments passed, the laws banning black people from living in the state slash owning property were suspended by nat- superseded by national laws. But Oregon did not permanently ratify the 14th Amendment until 1973. Now, some of you are, might be wondering, well, what is the 14th Amendment? So I'm just going to recite that to you. Uh, So we'll have this as kind of like a springboard. And don't feel bad if you don't know what the 14th Amendment is. We have many amendments. So the 14th Amendment is this. All persons born, and this is just one of the chapters of the amendment, but this is the one that is applicable. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the protection of law. Now, we see that, we see that um, amendment being violated and broken every day all around us. We are living in violation of that amendment. But I just wanted to hop in there and tell you what that amendment was. In 1866, lawmakers in Oregon ratified the amendment and then rescinded it in 1868. So they were like, eh, no, 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 uh, we don't like that amendment. We're going to take that back. And then through the perseverance and strength and backbone of the black people, the few black people that lived in Oregon, It was finally permanently ratified in 1973. Okay. So technically, after 1868, black people could settle in Oregon, but those black exclusion laws set a very clear message nationwide. The laws let everyone know Oregon was not a place for black people. Now, I believe it was... 1872 when there was the Homesteaders Act where you could be given land if you would go settle and in the west and it was kind of like a post 
like mid reconstruction era um the US economy was entering a depression as well and it was it was to incentivize kind of some to create to incentivize and create industry and development in the new states so that was kind of uh, overlapping with that. So a lot of, a lot of black homesteaders settled in Kansas and in Indiana and in parts of Wyoming and Minnesota, like that, that side of the Midwest. Um, but it doesn't mean that they were ne- necessarily much more welcome there. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but they could at least try if they aggressively worked at it every day, try to survive as a homesteader. Um, there were so many odds stacked against black settlers. It it's mind blowing uh, to be to be a, a non enslaved black person in the Victorian era. You still had a, an extremely difficult life, nearly insurmountable difficulties like that's just another podcast episode but it's you know that because it it deserves its own due so by 1890 there were a thousand black people in Oregon by 1920 there were 2000 the governor Democrat Walter M. Pierce, who was elected in 1922, was a very vocal supporter of the Klan. Now, this was pretty common. The Klan had government by the balls from state to federal. That is nothing new here. Um, They just threw money at it because the Klan was the government. That's why they wear the masks and stuff. They're the same people. So the Klan allowed them to, to basically fund themselves. That's how, that's how this worked. Um, Oregon, however, had the highest per capita Klan membership in the entire country. During this time, literacy tests for voting and compulsory public school for Oregonians uh, was also instated. So the public school law was targeted primarily at Catholics to to uh, forbid Catholic education because the Klan hates Catholics too. Um, But it also affected who was going to get, what schools would get the funding as well. More black people started moving to Oregon in World War II to work in the shipyards the black population soared to 20,000 people. Most of them lived in a a little town called Vanport between Portland and Vancouver, Washington. After the war, black people were, quote, encouraged to leave. And you know what that form, what form that encouragement takes. I mean, you have this clan, you know, even though it may have died down a little bit, but you had just very recently had had a very strong KKK presence. Um, That leaves a very long lasting and reverberating effect on any 
any neighborhood or or city like that stuff does not just go away once the clan kind of loses popularity it just goes deeper underground and takes root in more insidious forms the mayor of portland stated in a newspaper article that blacks were not welcome this was after the war so they were like okay all the white all the white guys that are coming back from war they want their jobs back so we want you guys to move um the housing authority dismantled vanport and jobs for black people disappeared this was right after world war ii they dismantled their town so the neighborhood where where black people were allowed to live they're like okay well i guess we'll just start tearing down your house we don't want you here and it was also they had been told that their that their neighborhood was safe from the columbia river that the dikes in place were secure so it wasn't exactly prime real estate to begin with because you're right near a potential disastrous flood zone were anything to happen. Um, in 1948, something did happen. The Columbia River flooded and it wiped out Vanport in a single day. So a lot of the residents there that were still there were black, 15 were were recorded as having been killed but a lot of the locals speculate that there were actually hundreds of dead people quietly disposed by the of by the authorities to cover up their mishandling of the flood okay 18,500 residents of Vanport were displaced including 6300 black residents roughly one third of option for those residents was to move to a neighborhood called albina now i don't know how that's pronounced um it might be albina but for the sake of continuity i'm gonna call it albina and what i mean how white is that albina like albino like beyond white um it had become a popular place for black porters who worked at the union station and it was the only place that black people were allowed to own their own homes. In the 50s, the white people who lived in Albina fled, 23,000 of them. 7,000 more black residents moved in. The neighborhood of Albina was the center of black life in Portland. Outsiders liked to see it as a, quote, slum. And granted, it probably was quite over, you know, like underfunded um you know and and the zoning and the way the way things were set up probably was a neglected part of the city in some some ways aesthetically speaking flash forward to y2k 2020 it's a white hipster hug in 1956, voters approved construction of an arena that destroyed 476 homes. That was in Lower Albina. Now, I live in 
a neighborhood where it's not many single family homes, but I'd say that there's probably per city per block in my neighborhood, there's about 80, I guess probably, I don't know, maybe 80 people per block, 80 homes per block. But if you're, if you have single family homes, it's probably about 20, let's say that the block has like 20 single family homes. So I'm going to do some math here. Five, 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 and three. Ooh, looks like twenty, like 23 blocks, 23 residential blocks, roughly. Now that's my fuzzy math, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to give you guys a, a visual of how much space that arena took up and how many homes they displaced. Like how many houses, you know? So that was in Lower Albina. Then those residents moved, the remaining residents moved to Upper Albina. Um, in the same year, 1956, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 gave Portland funds to build highways 5 and 99 right through right through Albina. Then a local hospital expansion was approved. That project cleared 76 acres, wiping out 300 businesses, homes, and shops at North Williams Avenue and Russell Street. So that intersection was known as the Black Main Street. Just, you know, just rip right through it. Like, can't get your hair done, can't go out to eat, can't go to the library, um, probably destroyed a couple churches in the, in the mix too. And then you had these sleazy sleazy mortgage companies like called the one was called Dominion Capital that quote sold dilapidated homes to black people in Albina and there were but they actually Dominion Capital still owned those homes and they also compounded it with balloon mortgages, which would, which basically the mortgage payments would get higher and higher, and the interest would increase, and they were able to quickly evict black people from their their homes. It, that's that is financial abuse. That is abuse. That is cruelty and evil, and in, in a very highly concentrated form, it's cruel. So by the late, late eight, 19 bleh, by the late 1980s Albina was in very bad shape. That's when the white gentrifiers came in. And they just pushed the remaining black people out of their homes. Um they started fixing things up and you know pouring their new money into it, their yuppie money. They started pouring it in and you know the housing values went up, and so therefore the property taxes went up. There were a lot of absentee landlords prior to the the uh, latest white gentrification boom. Um, and the the white people came in and basically bought up those those houses and became the new landlords and raised the rent. And 
now it's just another place that's not for black people, another place where black people are not welcome. So to me, with what's happening now, with, to me, this like dystopian takeover with tanks and whatnot, I think that it makes perfect sense that that is happening. Because at the very, very root, Oregon has always not been a place for black people. And there's so much privilege within those who are marching in Portland. And I'm not, I'm not judging anyone. But there's a lot more that needs to be dismantled and unpacked. They need to look around them. Look who is in their midst. Ask themselves, why am I here? Why do I get to be here? How did I get here? You know, some, I saw a video of some white lady was very upset because she had been tear gassed and she's like, I have a master's degree. You know what? No one gives a fuck about your master's degree. Your, your degree will not protect you. This is your problem. You know, if, if black lives matter to you, why don't you move out of the neighborhood you took away from them? Create welcoming spaces for people who are not white. And take some accountability for what you've stolen. So that concludes part one. And I want to come back next week and talk to y'all about part two, which I'm very excited to present to you. Um, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll get really stoked on a subject and then I'll not be able to find hardly any information on it. <clears throat> like Nadia Comaneci, I'm obsessed. And part of it is because I, it's very hard to find information on her. She's very protective of of her life story. The only biography that exists of her is a kid's, a kid, it's for kids. Um, but fortunately, because of the litigious nature of Oregon lawmakers in the past, there's a lot for me to read about and learn about. And there's also a great activist culture of black people in Portland over the years and in history that needs to have light shed on it. We need to talk about those people too. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so yeah, I'm going to drop off the packages today and then I'm going to hopefully go to community thrift they're open again and then I want to go to Japantown I want to go to the hardware store I've got a whole list of things I want from there 
I hope that you guys have a great week. I love y'all. Um, it has been very intense. And if you are in Portland listening to this, um, I wish you the best. <laughs> um, I'm glad I'm not there, but I feel like San Francisco is just a hair a hair away from being what Portland is now. I mean, it's really white and we have very similar we have very similar um bloody pasts with redlining and exclusion of black people. All right. You guys have a good week. Bye-bye.